Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 60. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up in all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible. And you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from. You can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible to make your smartphone smarter. Well, I'm so happy to introduce to you Philip Van Hooser. He's a keynote speaker, a management training expert specializing in leadership development. He's the founder of of the Leaders Ought to Know Leadership Development Program. And for the past 25 years, he has successfully developed and marketed customized keynote presentations, training programs, all sorts of products on leadership. His company consistently experiences double-digit growth and the opportunities he's had working with some of the top executives, managers, and frontline employees of some of the biggest U.S. and international corporation has given him a bird's-eye view of, of the leadership strategies that work in business today. Some of his clients include Alliance Coal, Allstate Insurance, Bluebell Creameries, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Lockheed Martin, Reebok, Verizon, and Wells Fargo. He's a longtime member of the National Speakers Association, and he's earned his certified speaking professional designation from them, and he's a member of the Speaker Hall of Fame. Phil, welcome to the Dose of Leadership. Are you ready to give us a common sense dose today? Well, Richard, thank you for the invitation to participate, and I'll do my very best. Well, if, if you've spent any time on my website and you've seen one of the things that I kind of harp on and one of my pet peeves is, is common sense. And, and a lot of the listeners of this podcast know, heard me say that common sense just isn't common practice anymore. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And um, I'm curious, and I love you in your title, Leaders Ought to Know, 11 Ground Rules for, 11 ground rules for Common Sense Leadership, certainly piqued my attention. So uh, tell me about a little bit about yourself. What got you passionate about leadership? You've been doing it for quite a while. And then let's talk a little bit about the genesis of the book. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm a fairly simple guy. i uh, a native Kentuckian, grew up on a farm in an agricultural background to a lower middle class family who uh, may not have had a lot of success in the business world. In fact, that was not the focus in our lives, but they were very focused on doing things right. Whatever it was that we were going to do, we were taught by our parents to take it seriously, give a good hard day as work, pay attention to other people, treat people the way you want to be treated, and so on and so forth. And in those early days, Richard, I'm not so sure that I was thinking leadership. I was just thinking being a good neighbor. And uh, as a result, um, I left the farm, went to college, didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. I just knew that my parents had an expectation for me, and as a result, I had an expectation for myself. I finished with a business degree at my alma mater, Murray State University, and then I tried to decide what am I going to do for my, with my life. And uh, there were a number of things that anybody, you know, where you're trying to find your lane, uh, experiment with, but 
I was fortunate to be hired for to work in manufacturing in corporate America. Again, an environment that was totally new to me. Um, again, none of my family or people that I knew a lot about had come up in manufacturing, but I got pitched into the world of human resource management, specifically in corporate America, specifically in Fortune 500 manufacturing companies. And I realized very quickly that um, if you're going to get things done, people have got to want to do it. They can't be made to do it. If you're constantly trying to force people to do something, quite frankly, more often than not, they're going to rebel, they're going to resist, and the outcome is not going to be what you wanted. Yeah. Or it's a, um, I was very fortunate coming into manufacturing and coming into the corporate world in the early 80s. And I say that because for those people who are students of management, management processes, and so on and so forth, um, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, it was not at all unusual to hear about type uh, A personalities. You still hear the conversation, but right. it was promoted, type A personalities and theory X management styles where people don't really want to work. You have to force them to work, and you know. And then in the 80s, uh, with all that was going on, I, I was a disciple, even though I didn't know that I was going to be, I was a disciple of the work of W. Edwards Deming in uh, total quality management, participative management, statistical process control, and all the rest. The company I went to work for had embraced that, and I was very fortunate to be sent off to schools to help learn and, and be further exposed to those concepts. And in the process, now this gets back to your original question, in the process of learning about W. Edwards Deming and tracking and upper and lower control limits and statistical controls and so on and so forth, I heard him say that as good as all of these techniques or processes are, you've got to have somebody that leads the process. And if you don't have a good leader, these processes aren't worth the paper they're written on. Right. And for some reason, what's the old saying? When the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah. You know, apparently I was ready for that message. And not being a tremendous mathematician, I wasn't as taken by the statistical processes as I was the concept of people treating people well, leading and following, and all that goes with that. And so in the early 1980s, in the very genesis of my professional career, I decided that I wanted to be a leader, not a manager. And as I tell my audiences today, that was the single most important professional decision that I've ever made, far more important than writing a book or starting a company or creating a particular speech. Deciding to be a leader then put me in a position to make choices that would further that that decision. And one decision led to another, which led to another, which 25, 30 years later, here I am talking to you about leadership. Well, you know, it's... A a couple things that I got out of that, and, and I've learned a lot, obviously, from talking to folks like yourself in the short time that I've had this podcast. But noticing it too in my career, and coming and coming from the aviation community and flying planes, and it is funny historically, even in the in the aviation community, the same type of thing happened about the same time where you went from this kind of command and control structure from the late '60s, the '70s, and in the '80s you started getting, you know, like you said, the, the total quality management of the TQ. In the Marine Corps, they call it TQL. They even kind of embraced that there for a while too. But specifically in flying, where they had more like the kind of what they call CRM or the crew resource management, and where you get everybody involved, and the leader's job is to kind of soak everything in and 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 
delegate and tap into your functional leaders that you have within the crew, right? And um, that's what I've taken and put into the management theory as well into work. And it still surprised me, and I still get educated even today. And the other companies that I've worked for and I've seen, and they've all been great companies. But there's still, uh, and I would say it's about fifty-fifty, maybe even maybe even sixty-forty, where the forty percent of the people really try to understand and, and make that choice, the decision, like you did, to be a leader. And there's still a lot of folks, even in, in a lot of the leadership that I've dealt with and they're good people and, and, and they say they want to understand leadership, but there's still that kind of theory X theory Y. And there's more theory X out there than I'm, that I'm surprised by that even by today. Do you see that? And that's kind of a long winded way. Do, do you still see that in all the consulting and the coaching that you do that there is more theory X out there than we'd like to admit? Yeah, I, I honestly do. Um, and like you, I'm somewhat troubled, but I'm not as perplexed by it as maybe you are. And I'll tell you why. Um, if you think about it, and I, I say it this way, when I'm standing in front of an audience and I'm talking to you know mid-level supervisors, mid-level managers, even upper managers, I tell them, I said, whether you know it or not, whether you've even thought about thought about it or not, most of you, if you haven't been reconditioned through leadership training in in recent years, most of you are using leadership styles and leadership skills and styles and concepts that are at least forty to fifty years old. Yeah. And then I tell them, let me explain why I say that. Most of us in our career, and you started in the military and then transitioned to the corporate world, but most of us in our careers, our first bosses, male or female, are usually, let's say, 10 to 20 years older than us, primarily because they've been in the the work world and they have progressed accordingly and so on and so forth. And so they're 20 to 20, uh, excuse me, 10 to 20 years older than us, and it's reasonable to think that their first bosses were 10 to 20 years older than them. Now, where do we learn to be effective leaders? Most of the people, unfortunately... Uh, that want to be effective leaders won't run out and buy my book or buy some other uh, leadership author's book. They just won't. They won't run out and sign up for a class. Most of us learn our leadership from our immediate supervisors Mm -hmm. with the thought process that, well, it got them to where they are, and so if it works for them, I guess that's the way it works around here, so I'll just mimic what I'm seeing. And as a result, you've got people today who are in their, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever it may be, that are practicing leadership styles that are, as I said before, 10, 20, 30, even 40 years uh, old. Now, here's the other point of that. That's, that's, not, that's not bad, necessarily, if the followers don't change. Right. But there's been wholesale change in followers in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And so, therefore, trying to practice and use leadership styles that worked for in the 50s, 60s, early 70s on employees today that are millennials or Gen, Gen Xers or you know Gen Yers or whatever they're called these days, frankly, doesn't work because yeah. the, the experience is not there. And, and so we have to evolve as leaders as our followers evolve, and some people simply don't like to change. And so, yes, I do experience it. I run into it almost every day in the workplace. That is when I'm standing in front of an audience talking face-to-face with them. But it gives me the opportunity to explain to them why things happen, and they more often than not simply haven't taken the time to think about that. Yeah, I love how you open the book. You in it, 
it struck, and I and I agree with everything you said. I love the example you give in in the presentations where um, you do the you pull the two individuals out of the audience and you say that this guy wants to be a surgeon and you kind of take him through that yeah. whole example. I think it's a great yeah. great example. But it's true that we and I think back to when I was thrust in leadership positions in every uh, corporation I've worked for since the Marine Corps. Um, there is no. Um, you're kind of just left to the wolves, and there is no. And and, and God bless the companies. It's, it's not because they they don't know this. There's just no, there's no formal. Okay, what do we do now? It's almost like you get promoted because of your execution, your tactical ex- excellence. But there's none of those soft skills. I'm like, what do we do now? Right? I mean, you you can probably explain it better with your scenario. But am I hitting some of the high points there? I think you are. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. You you reference the little story that I, the illustration slash story that I that I use in the book. And for people who haven't read the book, I will simply say what I do is I, in a, in a fun way, I pull a, a audience member out of the out of the group and and just say, you guys may not know this about John or Betty or whoever the person may be, but they have always wanted to be a surgeon. And just this morning, they went down to their local hospital and marched right into the surgical unit, came face-to-face with the most renowned uh, surgeon of the area and pronounced or announced to that person, I want to be a surgeon. I want to do what you do. And, of course, the surgeon asked the question, well, have you ever been to med school? No, no, I haven't. Have you ever taken advanced physiology, anatomy, anything in the in the you know sciences? No, no, haven't. Have you ever even watched a surgery be conducted? No, no. But I know I can do this. I just want to do it. And the the surgeon says, you know what? For some reason, I'm impressed by you. I believe in you. I think you can be an effective surgeon. And just to prove it, I'm going to give you my scalpel. And I've got a guy on the table in there right now. I want you to go take his appendix out. (laughs) Well, of course, at that point, I turned to another person in the audience and go, and you happen to be the one on the table. How do you feel right now? Well, they say I don't feel very comfortable. Well, the whole point is somewhat humorous, but then I make the point. But that's what happens in organizations every day. We take people who are extremely good technicians, in your case, uh, maybe a pilot or a, or a mechanic or whatever it may be. I came from the manufacturing world, so it might be a frontline supervisor or a, or a purchasing uh, agent or whatever it may be. They're extremely good technically. And because they're so good, what do we say? Well, they'd make a great supervisor. And then we lift them out of that which they do very well, put them into something they have no experience, and forget to tell them that the skill sets necessary to be a good supervisor or a good leader is significantly different than to be a good pilot or to be a good... Not that there's not transferable skills, but dealing with people is different than dealing with a piece of equipment or a oh, piece yeah. of machinery or a process. That's... And so, I, you know, I think it's very important that we recognize that if we're going to put people in a position an important position, because as I, I use in my illustration, I tell the person, just as, just as uh, realistically as I hand you a scalpel and say, go do surgery on that, on that person waiting on the table, what we do to supervisors is we say, here, we're going to give you power, now go do surgery on your department, but we, but we give them that challenge and that, that opportunity, even that, that call, but without giving them training that goes with it. And, and I just think it's, you know, I don't know of any other profession where you tell somebody to go be successful without giving them appropriate training, and yet there's still people that believe, I don't happen to be one of them, but still people believe that there are born leaders. I just don't believe it. 
I believe leaders are, are made based on a desire to learn, a willingness to learn, and, of course, given the skills and the processes that help, that have proven valuable for other leaders over time. Yeah, I, th- I can't tell you how many times I've seen where we've, we've taken, and I've, I've promoted you know, top-quality individuals that are just crushing it in whatever they're doing and whatever skill set they're doing, or and, and then they get them in there and they flounder. And, I, and, I, and early on, that I, I remember, why did this happen? And, of course, this was 15 years ago, but um, I've seen that so many times, and that's why I love that story, and it's so true. I think, though, that, you know, obviously when you highlight that kind of t- um, top performer and someone that you do, and I know a lot's been written about it, like what what do you do? And I think the best thing we can probably do is is acknowledge that up front things are going to be a little bit different than it was, you know, you know, making the widgets on the floor as good as you are doing that. This is a whole different ball game. It's a people ball game. And I think that's what gets missed a lot is that, and I've seen people like, well, if I didn't have to deal with the people, and I think you wrote that part in the book too, if I didn't have to deal with the people, things would be great. Well, yeah. then that's, that's, you have to be in love with the people process if you're going to be a leader, right? It's exactly right. You know, when I go in front of an audience, especially an audience of supervisors who maybe have recently been promoted, I, I have an opportunity to do that on occasion. I tell them, I say, three things happen literally the day after you're promoted into supervision. Let's assume you're a great machine operator, or you're a great a technician of any sort on Friday, and now on Monday you're the supervisor of the team. Three things happen immediately that almost nobody tells you about but they're going to happen anyway. The three things are expectations that you have. One is an expectation of performance. One is an expectation of exposure. And one is an expectation of knowledge. And I'll start with knowledge first. Everybody expects you, and I'm talking about the people that work for you or with you or that are choosing to follow you, they expect you to know as much as the person who was there 20, has been there for 20 years. Mm. Now, practically speaking, they know it's not possible, but on the other hand, they still have the same challenges. You are their leaders, so they expect you to know how to help them with their problems. We've got to learn. One of, uh, I'm a member, you mentioned in the, in the introduction that I'm a former member of the National, or I am a current member of the National Speakers Association, have been for many years. The founder of the National Speakers Association was a gentleman by the name of Cabot Robert, and Cabot always liked to say, school is never out for the professional. I think that is absolutely true for a leader. Yes, absolutely. You know, a leader cannot ever rest on his or her laurels based on the successes they've had in the past or what they've learned in the past, because in dealing with people, you're always being exposed to new people with new challenges, new problems, new expectations, etc. And so, number one, we have got to continuously learn or expand our knowledge base. Number two, we've got to continuously perform. We get leaders by, or supervisors rather, by definition, get their job done through other people. Well, leaders cannot be effective as a leader unless you have other people following you. And so we have to perform in a particular way that would inspire a certain amount of confidence that would enable us to lead people voluntarily. In other words, they choose to follow, not are forced to follow. Right. But, but the one that I think that's most important that gets overlooked the most is the exposure concept. You know, I was doing a program uh, for a corporate client of mine uh, literally one month ago tomorrow. 
and I've been meeting with them on a on a monthly basis, two hours a month for the last year. I was uh, in the program last month, and I asked a very simple question. I said, "Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you've been in this program now for a year. Simple question: How are you different today as a leader than you were twelve months ago today?" And you see people immediately look at their shoelaces <laughs> or their fingernails or the ceiling panels. You know, nobody wanted to make eye contact with me in the room. But if there's one thing I am, it's patient. And so I just sat there and waited. But think about it. How are you different today than you were a year ago today when we started this program? Because, frankly, if you aren't any different by your own admission, then something's not working. Either I'm not providing information or you're not taking it to heart or you're not practicing. But something's not working. Well, I finally got a few people that said, well, a little of this or a little of that. But, you know, it's obviously a difficult question for people. And then a young man held up his hand, and he said to me, well, Phil, I am completely 100% different today than I was a year ago. And I'll be honest with you, Richard, I, uh, my chest swelled a little bit. And I thought, oh, this guy's going to brag on just how brilliant I am now, you know. <laughs> and... and uh, he went on to say, Phil, it's not necessarily anything that you said. He said, with the exception of one thing. He said, we've covered a lot of important things. And he said, we're talking, and the things that we've covered in the last year, I've tried to practice. He said, but in the very first session, you said something that hit me right between the eyes that I had not considered before. He said, I've only been in supervision for about just under three years. And he said, I'm in my late 20s or early 30s. He's a young guy, in other words. He said, in your very first session, you said that for a leader, the spotlight is always on us. And I used an illustration where if you go to a concert, for example, any kind of concert, in the 30, 45 minutes before a concert, there's all kind of chaotic activity. You know, people trying to find their seats, and they're laughing and talking and buying refreshments and buying T-shirts. And it's just generally chaotic until one thing happens. And when that one thing happens, immediately it's the universal signal for people to focus. The lights come down in the auditorium. Now, the light, when the lights come down, within seconds, one of two things will happen. Either the room will fall silent or they'll break into collective applause. But in either case, now all of a sudden, everybody in that room is doing the same thing, whereas just a few seconds before, none of them were doing the same thing. Right. Now they're focused on the stage, but it's a, or toward the stage at least, but it's in total darkness. Then all of a sudden, the spotlight comes on. And you can be assured that if you've got 100, 1,000, or 100,000 people in that auditorium or in that space, that when that spotlight comes on, all the eyes are fixed on the spotlight. Whoever spe steps into that spotlight from that point forward through the, con through the concert will command the attention of the people in the room. And I shared this story, and then I turned, apparently, to the group, and I said, and that is you. You as supervisors, managers in this organization, you as leaders in this organization are constantly and continuously in the spotlight. And therefore, people will know what you say and who you say it to or who you ignore, and they'll know how loud you speak or how softly. They'll know if you're, your face grimaces. They'll know if you smile. They'll know if you pace. They'll know if you cross your arm. And they will interpret all of those things based on what they have seen from other leaders in the past. You will constantly and forever be in the spotlight. Yeah. Well, this young man told me, he said, I took that to heart. And he said, I can honestly look you or anybody in the eye and tell you that Every day for the past year, 
I have been reminded of that. I have thought about that. I am in the spotlight. And then he said, I asked myself a question. Knowing that I'm in the spotlight, is this what I would say if the spotlight were on me? Is it the way I would say it, or would I do it differently? Is it who would I communicate with, or how would I communicate with them? And he said, so I can honestly say that I'm 100% different today simply because I've come to the realization that as a leader, I am in the spotlight, and people are watching me and responding to me in kind to what they see. Yeah, you know, that's one of those great common sense principles that gets overlooked, like you said. I agree with you. I've, I've said that in presentations, too. And, and I remember early on in the Marine Corps career, they said, look, you have to understand they, they, two things that were tied with that. They said the unfortunate fact in reality of life is that perception is reality and that you have to understand that you are always, their eyes are always on you when they're not even looking at you. They are watching you. They know everything that you do. You're in the spotlight, like you said. So that's great advice because it takes concerted effort. Once you realize that, especially early on when you're in a leadership role, that really can separate you from you know a good manager to to beginning of a great leader. If you understand and realize that, because you will constantly be thinking about how's this coming across, how am I being perceived? You got to be careful. You don't want to walk around like a robot. You got to be a natural human being. But I think that's great advice. And I, well, I, you, you can take it one step further, Richard. You don't even have to be in a formal leadership position to recognize the value and the truthfulness of this statement or of this concept. I went on your website, and there was there you stood with your beautiful wife and four beautiful daughters. You know, as a parent, you and your wife are constantly being watched by those children. If I spent time with your family, I haven't. Maybe I will have that opportunity one day. But if I spent time with your daughters, I would start to find maybe they look like you, maybe they don't look like you physically. But I would believe they will start to have your inflection, your voice inflection. They will start to, if I watch them closely enough, they will mimic you in ways that they don't even recognize themselves. They will say things that they've heard you say. They will do things they've watched you do. You have been a practical leader in their lives for their entirety of their lives. Yep. And the same thing happens in the workplace. We shouldn't be surprised that people t- tend to take on the image of their leader. I, I sometimes tell people, if you're happy with your uh, department, if they're working hard, if they work together well, etc., it's probably a mirror ref- reflection of what you've shown them. On the other hand, if you're not so happy with them, if they're if they're not enthusiastic enough, if they're not committed to quality or safety or high-performing, uh, being a high-performing team or whatever, I would also encourage you to look in the mirror because they're probably seeing some of that from you. Now, that's not a 100% all the time this works kind of a concept, but it's a pretty good rule of thumb. And again, we're talking common sense today. We've got to understand the commonsensical value of that kind of, that kind of an approach, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy, you know, sitting there talking at zero speed and, and I've talked to many conversations with people about this and like, well, yeah, well, duh, but man, it really is work to put that in practice it, to be conscious of it all the time and how you're being perceived. Am I chewing gum? Am I swearing? How am I coming across? That takes a conscientious, uh, you know, that takes a tremendous amount of effort, more effort than, than we, like, we give ourselves credit for. You know, it's, it's like anything else. We have to create the habit of performance. You know, doing something right the first time or one time or half a dozen times may net a positive result in the short term, but doing something right every time and over time is what creates and, and continues to develop for us just sort of un, unending successes. The athletes that, that we know, and everybody loves athletics, or most people do, the athletes that are the highest performing individuals are the ones that have created the habit where they 
they don't even think about what they're doing. You know, they they have that rote memory they talk about or that muscle memory where they've done it so many times that they can think about what they're going to do the the second and third and fourth step. They don't have to worry about the immediate step because the body is taken over because because it's it's second nature to them. Well, that's what I trust that leadership can become too if we understand the processes that make us more effective as leaders and if we practice those processes religiously pretty soon we don't even have to think about it anymore it's who we are i tell people richard that you can't be in my opinion and of course i could be wrong but in my opinion you can't be a leader just at work yeah absolutely you got to be a leader at home you got to be a leader in your community you got to be a leader in your church or in your social groups or whatever it may be leadership is not an eight to five or whatever shift you work. Leadership is a 24 hour day, seven day a week, 365 day for the rest of your life undertaking. And if you're not committed to that kind of leadership development, then quite frankly, you're going to have at best limited success as a leader. Yeah. But for the people who make those choices over time, I think opportunities are unlimited. You know, and again, that's another one of those common sense things. And I've talked about that a, a lot on this podcast too. My listeners have heard me talk about it. Um, but it's true. I mean, I learned that late in life, you know, unfortunately, you know, I thought I put so much emphasis and I can honestly say I was not the same guy at home that I was at work. And you think that's, you think that, well, yeah, that's easy, but you know what? You look around, there's so many people that don't do what you just said. And I'm guilty of that. And, um, and, and to the point to where, you know, the marriage almost failed because of that, because I put so much emphasis on the success and being, um, that great leader at work and getting all the accolades at work. And if you're not that same guy at home, which I don't, and, I, and let's be honest, and not all of us are all the time, it does take a tremendous, and I think the greatest leadership challenge is to be that great leader at home. To be that great father, to be that great husband, the great spouse is much more challenging to be that great leader at work. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. But there's a good thing that we all have available to us. And I would assume that you've experienced it either practically and maybe you even didn't even notice it but in the book i talk about the whole concept of uh, well there's a whole chapter one of the 11 uh ground rules is the understanding of leadership pitfalls there are pitfalls that can trip us up and and one is that we are going to make mistakes we are human beings we are fallible individuals we're going to make mistakes However, there's something that's available to us that so many people overlook that are in management, supervisory, even formal leadership positions. Here's the concept that I promote in the book. I say people can and will forgive that which they can imagine themselves having done. Right. They cannot nor will they forgive that which they can't imagine themselves having done. And I'd say that's almost a get out of free, get out of jail free card in some ways for leaders. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we should be satisfied and regularly mess up because we know that people can and will forgive us. That's not the point. But I'm saying when we make an honest mistake as a leader or as a parent or as a husband, when we make a lot, an honest mistake, if we can, if we can, number one, fess up, you know, admit it, I, I messed up. And then let people understand what you were thinking when you did. If they cannot understand, well, he was under a lot of pressure. I can only imagine what that pressure might be. If they can imagine it and therefore feel as you're feeling, then they can and will forgive that that mistake. But if they can't imagine,
other words, if they say something, well, he could have at least apologized, and he didn't, that's when they won't forgive. Because it's something you could have done and chose not to do, something they think they, they would have done, and you did not, and therefore that becomes an obstacle over time. I don't think it's a problem to make a mistake. And in fact, we all learn from our mistakes, or at least we have the potential to do so if we're open to that. It's not being willing to admit our mistakes to our followers, when frankly they already know that we've messed up. They just are waiting to see how we're going to handle it. That's absolutely right, yeah. You know, and and not uh, not being afraid to say, hey, guys, my bad, you know. Uh, that's that one's on me, and uh, let me uh, let me try to explain why I made such a bonehead move. Uh, and if you're honest and candid and transparent with people, it's amazing how many times people go, "Hey, Phil, don't worry, man. We're here with you. We're we're, we're still here. We haven't bailed out. Let's go. We can we can fix this thing. We can we can move it forward." And even more trust, not less trust. For for some strange reason, there's still a, a great percentage of supervisors and managers who believe that if they make a mistake, they're supposed to hide those yeah. mistakes. That somehow that makes them stronger, or that their confidence would be would be shaken, and if people knew that they made mistakes, well, we all make mistakes. What we do about with them or about them afterwards is what's most important. Yeah, mistakes and failures are great opportunities for leaders to. Um, actually build a lot more trust. The more courageously authentic you can be and the more vulnerable you can be. And like I said, the, those are great opportunities uh, to make any relationship, team, cohesive, you, you name it, to make it stronger. And what you said is spot on. Again, common sense, and it makes so easy. Oh, yeah, it's easy to understand. Much more difficult to put it in practice when it really happens. That's right. But, Tell me a little bit about the leadership lie. That's one thing that stuck out too. I want to get I want the listeners to hear that. That's a great part early on in the book where you talk about the leadership lie. What is the leadership lie? Um, the leadership lie is a concept that that well, it's not a concept. It's a reality. It's it's what yep. so many people have heard. You get promoted into a, a position of leadership. Usually, that means supervision or management. And uh, there's going to be people that offer advice. And one of the pieces of advice that I, frankly, received early in my career, and I found over the years that there's been many, many, many people who've received the same advice, is uh, you get promoted, and people start coming up and congratulating you and wishing you the best and so on and so forth. Oftentimes, a trusted, uh, a senior, meaning someone older than us, a senior member of the management team or supervisory group or whatever, uh, who, who we like and who likes us, in other words, this is not... There's no negative here. But they'll come to us and say, let me just play it out. They say, Phil, congratulations, man. I, 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 you're going to be great. I'm so happy they picked you for this position. Uh, you got some things to learn, of course, but I know you're going to be successful. But, but because I want you to be successful here, I want to give you a piece of advice. And here's the advice they give. Don't get too close to your people. And then they go ahead and explain why they're giving that advice. Don't get too close to your employees. Don't get too close to your followers. Don't get too close to your people. Because if you do, one of these days, they advise, one of these days you're going to have to make a tough professional decision. And if you can't separate your personal feelings from your professional responsibilities, then quite frankly, you know, it's just a lot easier if you don't get close to your people. Well, when I tell that and when I'm, use that as an illustration in my groups. I say, how many of you have literally, if you haven't heard these words, don't hold up your hand, but how many of you have heard these words at some point in your professional career? Yeah. It's not unusual for me to get 60, 70, 80% of the people holding their hands up. And that's when, I t- 
And I tell them, I say, forgive me for saying it so bluntly, but it's a lie. And then I go on and add, it's not a malicious lie. Don't don't misunderstand. It's not a lie that they're telling to try to hurt you, but a lie is the absence of the truth. And as far as I'm concerned, they've told you a lie because they haven't told you the whole truth. And I say, let me put it in my words. My words are these. You can be a manager without getting close to your people. You cannot be a leader unless you get close to your people. Agreed. Now, getting close doesn't mean dating them or uh, having them over every Friday night for cookouts or, you know, going on extended vacations or whatever with them. That's not what I'm saying. When, I say, when I'm talking about getting to know them, we've got to get to know their hopes, their dreams, their goals, their aspirations. But we also need to know their fears, their anxieties, their frustrations, their, their you know, their, their faults. Because the more we know about our followers, then the more we can focus on what they need from us, their leader, yep. and they in turn then feel more comfortable in trusting and following and, you know, being loyal to whatever the process is that we're trying to create. So that's what I, that's, that's my concept of the leadership line. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think it's a great, you know, getting one of the, again, chock full of common sense. And it's refreshing to, to see that because I've certainly heard that a couple of times, but it's so true. And like you said, it's not like you, you don't need to cross the fraternization line, but you need to know who your people are. And that's yeah. probably one of the biggest complaints that you see in employee surveys is like they don't know what, I, what I'm about or who I am. They really don't know me. And, man, you think about some of those great leaders that you've been impressed by. They knew who you were. They knew your name. They knew the names of your kids. That's uh, right. That takes tremendous effort. So I'm glad you put that in the book too. Last thing before we wrap up here, I love – the motivation myth, the two myths that you had in there, that was yeah. unique. I haven't seen that in a long time. Let's talk about those two before we wrap up. What are the, the motivational myths? Actually, it's not the motivational myths. It's motivational truths that I talked about. There are some motivational myths myths that we talk about, but I, I mentioned specifically in the book two motivational truths that I think are worthy of consideration by all leaders. Uh, the first one is, is by, by the way, Richard, I, I think you and I both are of kindred spirits in that we're probably not too easily swayed by pop psychology. Mm, right. uh, we've talked a lot about common sense. I, I believe in truth, and I, when I say truth, I believe in truth that wasn't proven because somebody wrote a book, be it me or anybody else, and said this is true. Truth is something that's proven itself or shown itself to be true over time. And when I say over time, I'm talking about years, decades, centuries, of, you know, for all eternity, whatever it may be. I've come up with two motivational truths that I don't think anybody can argue with. And the first one is this, that you can't, I can't, no one can motivate us and motivate someone to do something that they don't want to do. We can make them do it, we can force them to do it by, by way of the position that we occupy if we have enough power over another person. But just because someone does something that we want them to do does not mean that we have motivated them to do it. Right. Motivation is something that comes from within, something that's voluntary, something that's very personal and, for that matter, very intrinsic to the individual. Nobody can motivate somebody to do something they don't want to do. Now, when I tell people that, sometimes they go, well, then there's no such thing as motivation, right? I go, no, just the opposite. Motivation is very real, and there are many, many, many things that we are all individually motivated by. The second motivational truth is the one that brings those into perspective. And my second motivational truth is this, that we are not motivated. We are not 
motivated by what we have. What we have, we're thankful for, we're, we're blessed by, we don't want to give up. But if we have it, it's not motivational. We are not motivated by what we have, we're motivated instead by what we don't have, but have determined that we want or need. Yeah. If I want something or need something badly enough, that will drive my thinking, that will drive my planning, that will drive my actions, that will drive my consistent behavior over time. I give in the book a couple of illustrations. I won't belabor the point now, but I give an illustration of something that, as a young boy, I experienced firsthand was so taken by something. It I have to admit, it was materialistic. It was a pool table. And I know how foolish that sounds, but I was so driven by that experience of seeing a pool table for the first time in a private residence that I said, I want to have a pool table one day. That was not even in the realm of possibility for me as a child, Mm -hmm. but it never left me. And I worked and worked and continued to think until one day as an adult, some 40-plus years later, I was able to have a pool table. Now, people go, well, a pool table. It's not the pool table. That's not the point. The point is that people are driven by those things that they deem to be important. They deem to be valuable, regardless if we see the same value in it or not. That's why leaders need to get to know their followers and get to know what motivates their followers based on needs and wants so that we can help them satisfy their individual needs and wants as they work to satisfy the needs of the organization. And therefore, that's when we get the cohesive teams pulling in the same direction, all benefiting from the experience, even though the experience, the benefits may be somewhat different. Good stuff. The book's called Leaders Ought to Know, 11 Ground Rules for Common Sense Leadership. Philip, I think you've given some great – I mean, we just barely scratch the surface what's in the book. I love what you have in there, 11 uh, Common Sense Principles – her ground rules. You got great real life stories. Um, that's what's so good about the book. You do a good job at telling the stories, which I think is essential to getting the points across. It helps keep the book entertaining. So uh, you got good stuff there. Where else can people find you? Well, if they're interested, and hopefully they will be, of course, they can find the book in any of their favorite booksellers. They can go online, Amazon.com or Barnes Noble, BNBN.com. So they can find the book wherever. Uh, books are sold. Um, if they're interested more about uh, our speaking and training services, uh, they can always go to our primary website, which is uh, www.vanhooser, my last name, V-A-N-H-O-O-S-E-R.com. Or there's one other exciting place. If uh, there's, there's so much talk to these days about online learning or virtual learning, um, I'm very excited about our online leadership development initiative that we call LeadersOughtToKnow.com. Same title as the book, Leaders, plural, ought, O-U-G-H-T-T-O-K-N-O-W, LeadersOughtToKnow.com. And for companies that are trying to uh, enhance and develop a leadership culture from within, it's a tool that uh, does the very things that we've talked about today, shares practical, common-sense information, but in a way that it becomes habit and not just something they hear but don't practice. And uh, I'd be more than happy to talk to folks about it if they visited uh, that website and have more inform- or more questions. I'd be more, more than happy to provide information to them. Right. They can reach me. Anybody can reach me at our Office 270-365-1536. 
270-365-1536. I'd love to have a conversation. Awesome. I'll have all links to all this in the post when I get it posted. And, Phil, Wonderful. it's uh, great fun talking to you. Uh, I really enjoy having you on the show. We'll have to have you come back and, uh, and talk more. Thanks for coming on the show. Richard, thank you, and thank you for what you're doing for leaders everywhere. It's been a real pleasure. I, I look forward to future conversations. Me too. Take care. Okay. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.